you are in for a treat today. Today, I am excited to share a conversation with Mohammed Amer. Mohammed has a rich corporate history, military history, so many pieces and parts to this conversation, but he's also a PhD. And we're going to talk about his PhD work and the unique perspective that brings him, that he brings to just the world, the way we look at things, but also to advisory boards. And so I am excited uh, this extended conversation that I had with Mohammed. And I know that by listening to this, whether you're an advisor, whether you're a CEO, whether you're somebody who serves in a capacity supporting advisory boards, small business, large business, whatever role you play, this conversation will be valuable to you. So buckle up. Here we go. Mohammed Amer, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. How are you today? Fantastic. Thank you, Tom. How are you? I am great. It's great to have you on the show today. So let's begin with your coordinates. Where exactly are you in the world today? So today I am in Ventura, California, and that's about halfway between Malibu and Santa Barbara. You can kind of visualize that. Got it. All right. So let's begin with your morning drink of choice. I don't know why I've decided to do this crazy thing on this show, but what's your typical morning drink of choice? What do you drink to start the day? Well, it's a, a little bit complicated, but the short answer is it's tea, just regular okay. tea. But in reality, the very first thing that I drink is warm water with lemon, half mm. a lemon. I do a little bit of intermittent fasting. So yep. the first, how I break it in the morning is through that warm water and lemon. And then after that, I have my, my tea and I'm set, I'm ready to go. And it's decaf. So oh, okay. yeah, I, do, I okay. don't need the caffeine to, to get going. You, you've got lots of energy working for you to begin with. So how do you start your days? So you just mentioned that you start with lemon and what, but like, what's a, what's an average day when you're starting it look like? Like, are you an early riser? Are you crack of dawn? Are you four in the morning? What's your, what's your normal start of day look like? It, it, I have an early start. My normal start is between 4.30 to 4.45 is, is when I wake up and I rarely if ever use an alarm clock. It just, the body just, it doesn't matter whether it's Monday or Sunday, that's when I'll wake up and get going. And is that when you have your water or do you like, do you read? Do you, do you go for a walk? What's, what's your start of the day routine? Yeah. How, you, how have you, or has it evolved over time? What's, yeah. what's the thing that gets you started? I usually walk. Oh, so, okay. so right off the bat, I'll wake up within five, 10 minutes. I'm, I'm ready to go. The brain's turned on, body's ready yeah. to go all freshened up and I, I will do a walk, listening maybe to NPR, listening to some old time radio shows. Mm. Then I'll get into a, a sequence of reading digitally the newspaper, the LA Times, New York Times. I, I tend to look at the newspapers and their breaking news versus relying on curated news feed that's delivered by an app or something like right. that. Got it. Okay. So, so that gives us a sense of where you are in the world, how your morning unfolds. Let's start with your history. So take me back to roughly 1974. And I don't know what's special about 1974, but I was playing on your LinkedIn profile. And I assume that's before you, you went off to college. And so what's happening in your life in that sort of pre-college time frame? Yeah. What's happening? What are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about for your life? Well, you know, I was born in Egypt, okay. so came here as a young preteen. And for someone like myself and my sister, very exciting. Mm -hmm. For my parents, scarier than anything. Oh, yeah. There's no job necessarily. It's a it's a real immigration. You know, file. You know, paperwork. All that. Yeah. You you know, you have your green card, but you arrive and there isn't necessarily a job that's waiting mm -hmm. for you. There isn't your here is your living arrangement. Your ecosystem support is thousands of miles away. So mm -hmm. as I look back at those, those days, I'm going like, how in the world did my parents take a major leap like that? But they did it for myself and my sister. 
for mm. a better life. So 1974, you know, we've been in the U.S. for a few years, still in high school. And my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations are all about how do I pay back my parents? How do mm. I fulfill uh, the dreams they have for me? And that equates to, of course, you go to college. That was a no-brainer. But you got to be a doctor, an engineer, something like that. Has, has a certain caliber, has a certain cachet. It, it ensures your future. It says, yes, the sacrifices that were made were worth it, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So that was the whole mentality. And, and you don't realize it as a 16, 17-year-old that you're really living somebody else's projections. Yeah. You're not yeah. really true to yourself. You don't even think of that. At least I certainly did not. Maybe today's okay. youth are far more ahead yes. in that sense. So it wasn't until I was really in college that I began to think about that. And am I really going down the right path that I wish for myself as a pre-med student and so on? But 1974 was that transition kind of from high school to college. And it also happens to be the year that I met my wife. Oh. You know, so we were high school sweethearts. So uh, delightful. And so you meet your wife, you choose to go to college. You just said pre-med, but so what, what's the decision sequence? So you want this kind of life for yourself. What do you choose and why do you choose that specific? So you said pre-med. So I saw a biology degree on yep. your resume. Yeah. So I thought pre-med was a major, but no, it was like a, a direction that you take and, and discovered towards the end of my junior year, you know, the registrar, the University of Minnesota says, okay, what's your major? I said, pre-med. No, 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 no. Your major. I said, well, which courses am I closest? Which major am I closest to? You know, look at all the, the courses I've yeah. taken and so on. And it was biology, microbiology. I said, biology. Sounds good. So it was really backing into something rather than being, you know, going forward to something. And, and that was, that was the major, you know, my college courses, what I really enjoyed the most were the humanities, things where I really, I, I did well enough in calculus, physics, chemistries, microbiology, all that stuff, virology. But where I really was intrigued was reading the humanities, reading history, art history, you know, things where multiple aspects of humanity come together. And that's what I found really intriguing because in, in math and sciences, you have a question, a problem, and you have right. an answer. It's discrete. It is one and only one. There is no maybe, if, but in the other, in the humanities, it was like, wow, you can write an essay. You can put your own thoughts and why and how. And, and it was just like, there was no right or wrong, but how well you supported, how well you were able to bring the pertinent information into into your essay and so on. So I found that to be just really cool. Yeah. So did that transition you from that pre-med direction? Did that, those humanities, the integration of that into your world, did that start to change your focus or did you stay true to the focus, but that was just informing it? So I had a tremendous appreciation for the scientific method, the experiments, the hypotheses, looking for evidence, collecting data, and all that. that That's a foundation I still have today. But what I discovered is that the world is not just black and white, right. not just such simple terms. There are a lot of gray areas, things that I just never appreciated within the science tract. So wh where I went was basically that winter. So a few months before graduation, still on path for a medical school, but not really my heart in it. And this, my best friend in college came up and said, hey, did you look at the, the daily today? And I, you know, the paper and, and he goes, look, there's a picture. There was a F-14 banking with clouds. And I said, you too can fly Navy. He said, I'm going to interview with the Navy, with the submarine guys today. Maybe you want to go talk to them about aviation. And I said, I don't even, I, you know, I can't comprehend this. You know, I thought you had to go to military academy or something like that. And I did. I went and I talked and I discovered that, hey, as a college graduate, there's another way to get a commission as an officer in the military, Navy, Air Force, etc. And it, it just all of a sudden opened up a vista that was not there the day before. 
fortuitous. Yeah. So, so uh, you did something with that then, because it shows on your resume that, that in 1978, you end up with the U.S. Navy. So what did you do in the Navy? So in the Navy, I went into aviation officer candidate school. So that okay. was the other path to become an officer. If you had not gone through the Naval Academy, for example, they were looking for officers that will be in avi naval aviation. So as an aviator or a naval flight officer, basically a pilot or a co-pilot. And I remember going to the interviews and taking the tests and all that. And at the time, I didn't, wasn't even wearing glasses. I didn't realize that I wasn't exactly 20-20 perfect vision. But they said, that's okay. You can be a naval flight officer. You, know, you can tell the pilot where to go. I said, okay, that sounds pretty good. So the whole idea was that the Navy was on a recruiting bin at that point, and they needed people, officers in, in naval aviation. But they sent you down to Pensacola, Florida, mm. to get that commission. But before they do that, before they do the commitment and you commit to them and all that, they send you down there just for a, a look-see. Oh, okay. So they, they take you down, they fly you down there. You think you're on top of the world, you do great things, but they show you what you're going to go through. You can see, you know, the, the pressure, physical pressure, mental pressure, psychological pressure, the stamina that you need and so on. And, and they basically weed you out with, through that look-see visit. Oh, okay. So people will self-select. I said, you know what? I like it, but it's not for me. I, I said, you know, this is exactly what I want to do. As a little boy in Egypt, I remember during the air raids, I would come out of the shelter outside the, the basement of the apartment buildings and look at the sky, trying to spot one of the, you know, phantoms or MiGs up there and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be flying up there doing that? So it, it's kind of funny to be able to, you know, yeah. nine, 10 years later, have an opportunity like that. So to, to just dig in a bit, uh, you've done sort of your pre-med process, biology degree, you get this opportunity, you decide to go in the Navy, but, but what are your parents thinking about this? I'm, I'm intrigued by that connection sure. because that's such an important part of your story, which is immigrant parents, and you now are serving in the military for the country they immigrated to. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting in that one of the reasons they, they also left is they didn't, you know, I was the only son and they didn't want me to be involved in a, in a war and die and, yeah. and so on. And here I am in the, in my adopted country wanting to, to be part of the military. And so my parents, my, my father was supportive in his own quiet way. My mom was more vocal, like, you are making the biggest mistake of your life. Really? How can you be doing this? <laughs> we did this. We did that. You're, you're going to, and, I, and I, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. Ten years later, when I resigned my commission, you are making the biggest mistake of your life. How can you <laughs> resign? You have such a great career. They're doing, you're doing great. They love you. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, How can you do this? Right. So I'll, I'll never forget those those two end yeah. points. Or so looking back at your time in that span of years that you were part of the Navy, what were the biggest lessons, insights that you feel have come along for the journey with you? What, yeah. what are the things that profoundly affected you from that time in your life? Going through college, I, I lived at home or off campus. So I didn't have the, the same kind of socialization that you would have being part of a fraternity or sorority mm. or something like that. And University yeah. of Minnesota is, at that time even still was huge, you know, 35, 50,000 student right. bodies. Right. So it, going in the Navy, it was, it was really a tremendous socialization experience. The camaraderie in the military and especially in the Navy, when you're involved in a mission where you're, you're putting your life on the line every single time you're, you're doing a sortie. Yeah. is nothing that I could have described, understood. Mm. I may have read about it. It would not have made much sense. Right. But actually having experienced that. So that camaraderie, and to this day, I still have very strong relationships with some of the guys that I was in the squadron with, that, that wow. initial sea tour. The leadership, you have got to take care of your crew, your troops, your shipmates. Otherwise, there is no leadership. So yeah. it's, it's so integrity your word, those, those are really things that unless you've experienced it, unless you've had the 
opportunity to exercise it and to understand it. It just does not translate when you're just been in the civilian world only. They talk about leadership in, in boardroom, in C-suite, but it, it is really managing people. It's different from leadership where you are inspiring somebody, where you have somebody's life in your hands and they yeah. have yours in theirs and you have that reliance, that trust, and that common vision of the, and the mission. And that's something that really is very difficult to generate in this in the corporate world. Yeah. So that's come along for this long ride with you, those, those pieces and parts yep. that you got there. But evidently, you know, you reach the point where your mother says, no, don't, don't do that. Don't quit. What's happening in you that says, okay, my time's done. What's, what's sort of fueling this desire yeah. to keep moving forward? Yeah. So, you know, the, the way the Navy and military in general works, you know, you, they put you out in the field. You taste that and it's fantastic. You're, you're making things happen, creating headlines that people will be reading the paper the next day or something like that, or at least around the corridors in Washington, D.C. They pay you back by sending you to, to get a master's in something. But eventually, you need to come to Washington, D.C., to the Pentagon, to the mm. seat of power. Right. And that's when you really begin to realize that being in the squadron, being out in the field, that was the fun stuff. Now this is payback. Now you're in the political arena. Uh, you're more administrative things, your policy, nothing wrong with policy. It's just that how you get things done, then it's more of that organizational politicization process. And at some point you ask yourself, how in the world did we get anything done out in the field, out in the squadron, out on the ship, given this this what you're experiencing yeah you know and the nickname for the pentagon is the five-sided wind tunnel from all the hot air uh, so again i also appreciated what it takes organizationally yeah. to get things done i just thought it was a very high price to pay for the tip of the spear where i was and the excitement mm. of the tip of the spear was not the same once i was back there and that's what made me think about okay, this is cool. There are ways I can still be at the tip of the spear, but there are trade-offs and you know, going into CIA, the NSA, DIA, you know, things where I can still be doing similar things because I was in naval intelligence and naval aviation. But I decided that, you know what, I've put in 10 fantastic years. I mean, to this day, I can't imagine a better period in my life where I really packed in a lot of action and activities and, and growth and so yeah. personal development. But let's wrap all that up and see how far I can throw that. Where can it go? What, so I was, just as my parents were willing to do something new, I was willing to resign my commission before I was accepted in, in business school. And I just said, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'll be able to get in because you have to apply within a certain yep. period, but then you have to resign your commission like well, well before oh, okay. that yep. decision is made. It's not like I can cover my my bet here or something you just have to commit and go for it so why business school as opposed to going back to this history that you had created with biology and pre-med is there a distinction that happened somewhere along the way that made you think business versus go back to that path that you had started yeah the biology chemistry sciences all that that was good to get my foot in the door as a commissioned officer Without that, I could not have been uh, an okay. officer, right? So I, I resigned my commission as a lieutenant commander, 04. But my love was in the action, was in learning new things, was applying it now to organizations, you know, teams. It okay. was no longer looking at research, you know, bacteria and virology mm. and spending X hours in a lab. No, I wanted to be out doing things, making a difference in people's lives more directly versus through a test tube. Right. Yeah. So, so it seems to me, and I, I'm putting words in your mouth, but just bear with me. You sense coming out of this world you'd inhabited in the Navy that you could best do that in the context of business. So you go do an MBA. That's, that's where you head. And you do an MBA and is that sort of a full-time gig? You just put your head down and got that done? 
Tell me a little bit about that and then where you went from there and what, what was the, the path coming out of that MBA and how did this desire to actually be in the action and doing really cool things, how did that translate? You get your MBA and then where do you go? What happens? Yeah, so, so to transition to the corporate world, you, you've got to take the skill sets and all that that you brought in from the military into and apply it there. Well, the, the corporate world doesn't have a, a whole lot of demands for intelligence analysts or people that fly airplanes or people that did missions around you know, electronic warfare, battle right, order, right. et cetera. So the MBA made, made a lot of sense to gain that credibility, make mm. the transition, be able then to get into general management. So first of all, I had, I had a terrific two, two years full-time program at Northwestern at Kellogg. Yeah. And it was a great place for our kids, uh, for my wife, walking to school. It, it, was, it was just very convenient. I also got to taste things around general management, around merger and acquisitions, marketing, finance, and realized that I really like general management. I mm. like being able to have an operation, a business, and so on, and, and versus, let's say, going to Wall Street and doing something like that. Moving piles of money, money. from one yeah. side to another side and getting a cut yeah. was less interesting than dealing with people emotions, yeah. building teams, getting people pointing in the right direction, all that. So that, that made a lot of sense. Also gave me an appreciation for spreadsheets. I mean, you know, this is late eighties, yeah. nineties, you're talking about spreadsheets galore, but it also told me that that's not where I wanted to live day mm. in and day out. I understood you needed to do that, the value, making models and so on, but I wasn't just like a test tube. I didn't want to spend my time in the laboratory. I also didn't want to spend eight hours, 12 hours a day mired in, in a spreadsheet. So right. being, you know, so I, I, I got into office products with Boise Cascade, okay. uh, general management out there in the, on the West Coast. I was recruited to another office products company on the East Coast. And from there had sufficient now grounding in business where I can enter the management consulting field. And really there, you really have another spurt of growth where each engagement is new, it's different, yeah. uh, and you're advising senior members of executive team, you're dealing with people in, in a distribution center or a factory floor, so you're dealing the entire spectrum and communicating and presenting findings and solutions that are going to be feasibly implemented as well as uh, being bought by the senior executives. So then this interesting thing happens is you get this massive chunk of years at this really small company, SAP. <laughs> so, and, and that, I, you know, as I read it, it's like 16 years or so at SAP. Yeah. So, so give me a sense of you get to SAP or tell me a little bit about that. And then, cause I realize 16 years is a lot, but give me sort of the highlights, the lowlights, the major yeah. lessons in SAP. Cause SAP is not a slouch company. This is a, this is a global company. So you end up there. Give me a little bit of the story. Yeah. You know, after doing consulting, saw an opportunity in the late nineties to start my own company with a colleague. So we, okay. we, st we started a software company looking at supply chain, looking at, so it's like technology based and we used leverage them for the, you know, the knowledge that we had developed and we were able to sell that company. We were acquired. And so I was, I was the president. He was both co-founders and were able to go through that successful exit and stayed on with the new company for about a year and decided that I'd like to spend a couple of years with the family, especially the children, because we have yep. been gone so many times traveling and so on. You, you give up something. So I wanted to, yep. to make sure I was there. Did that for a couple of years. But one of the things that I did before all that was a, a very, one of the very first successful SAP retail implementations in North America. And it, it was very well received, and I was charge of the the testing for the the final the go lives and so on. So, you know what you don't know through life is you build relationships, and you never yes. know when these will pay off yeah. or if they pay yeah. off. And and of course you're helping people along the way as well. It's not just a right. one way street. So after the, those couple of years, I had a call, and 
one of the people I worked with during that that time was now part of SAP and they were building a practice around retail. And I got an invitation to, hey, come on down, apply. And I joined them and it was a 16-year ride. So went from kind of looking at products where I was the owner of the grocery segment globally. Okay. Which really means that you are looking at what are the solution set that you're offering grocers, right? From not just the HR financials, but also, you know, merchandising, supply chain, pricing, et cetera. So that, as well as I also had supply chain mm. across retail for the Americas. So did that. And for a few years, then after that, I actually was in charge of the business unit, retail business unit in the Americas. From there, again, you don't know where things will go. And we had SAP was really pushing community building, virtual communities, and they were building something that they really wanted consultants, partners, customers. They're all coming in here in this virtual community and contributing to it, adding knowledge and tapping into all the resources that SAP had. So I was in charge of being a champion for something like that, which took me after a couple of years into communication, strictly looking at strategic communications, internal, external for retail, then eventually consumer products and consumer sector which involved multiple industries. And then the last two years or so across all of industries, supporting the, the, you know, the co-presidents of industries. Wow. So, and progressively your, how I hear it, you're morphing from being someone who's focused on product to, to industry focus, but eventually you, you're in a communications Correct. focus where it's about how communications happen, how that transpires. Yeah, executive communications, internal yeah. communications in, in concert with HR, external communications with PR, crisis yeah. communications. So it, it and, and having that background around product, around going to market, around, yeah. you know, customer facing roles gave me insight and understanding about the narrative, the messages, and, and how to project the executives forward. What's a good story? What's a not so good story? How do you support you know, what you're trying to accomplish out in the marketplace? And so so on. My, my question for you in that is, are you aware that you are becoming more focused on how stories are developed, how, how communication happens? Is that something that internally you're guiding yourself towards, or is it just people started recognizing you had an insight around that, you had a way of doing it. Is it something that you were determining or is it like this superpower that other people were seeing? It's both. It's, okay. it's being like co-created. So we, we like to think that we control where we're right. going and what we're, yeah. you know, but in yeah. reality, you influence that direction. But yeah. the, the opportunities you get, the conversations you get into the, the relationships, you people that you have, they also yeah. bring you into conversations and opportunities that you would not have anticipated. So it's a, it's a question of you're sitting at this table playing this game and you're getting dealt cards. You have yeah. no, no one's telling you these are the rules. You get so many cards, you're just discovering yeah. at yeah. the same time. So there's self-discovery as well as you know, taking opportunities, taking advantage of what's in front of you. And deciding, you know what, this sounds intriguing. Let me go down that path a little bit more and see what that feels like. Yeah. In parallel to all that, I, w- I started working on a dissertation in the PhD program around 2009. So while all these transitions are happening, I'm sitting there also thinking about, okay, I want to get a PhD in organization, leadership, business stuff, you know, things that correspond to what I'm doing. So Hey, you know, things were pretty interesting for me. Got it. So you've got this, this whole big, massive career that there's the initial one. And then there's SAP rising mm-hmm. right up to very senior roles in internal and executive communication, but you're doing the PhD. So tell me a little bit about the PhD work. Tell me about what you're thinking while you just insinuated there. It's related, 
but what are you doing from a PhD yeah. perspective? Where are you digging in? I'm, I'm really intrigued by this part of your, your story. Yeah. So one of the things I learned about myself is I, I get bored easily. I have mm. to always be constantly learning, constantly doing yep. something that challenges the way I think, my beliefs. I, I've got to always be challenging myself and adding more knowledge. So in that, that 2009 time frame or so, I was going to get a, a doctorate in organization and human organization systems, but it was going to be around strategy, strategy formulation. So, and I was looking oh. at strategy as practice because in the, in the historically, you know, you, the McKenzie's, the Baines, uh, Boston yep. consulting group, they come in smart people, but you know, here's the, the file, you know, the binders and there it is. But by the time it's delivered, it's obsolete. Things have changed. And one of the things I really was intrigued with in, in my studies was something called the practice turn in, in sociology, where how you act, how you behave, how you think, the, the doing and the thinking, that they all really come together and they are situational. And you really need to, to kind of understand the, the objects the artifacts, the context, and, and so on. It, it's, it's not as simple as sitting down and saying, looking at a problem and coming up with a solution and typing it up and presenting to that. It, it's a lot more complicated, but yet yeah. it, 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 the, the human element plays in that. And time is a construct in all of that. So, so I had, I had my, my dissertation laid out, my you know, methodology and all that. And then something happened in January of 2011. Tahrir Square blew up, the Arab Spring. And so I was glued to the TV. So, yeah. and, and you know, when I was in the Navy, also my, they sent me to Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, one of my favorite spots in the world. And I did a master's and it was on the Middle East, North Africa. So, so even, you know, the Navy saw that also because oh, okay. of the work I did when I was in the squadron that right. they can benefit from, from that. So I had academic grounding in that as well. So looking at that, I said to myself, I, I have got to switch my dissertation. I, I can still be looking at things similarly around practice, you know, but what happens to society? Change, crises, how do you transform? How, why are things unfolding the way that they are? So I wanted to really focus around the Arab Spring, looking through the lens of the Egyptian experience. And I subsequently came up with the lens of nationalism to understand the unfolding. I wasn't out to explain why it happened. I was more interested to understand how did it unfold the way it did. So more understanding rather than cause effect. Uh, okay, but but uh, you know, so the appreciation. more how the process unfolded versus the why. Yeah, why did it unfold the way it did? Why didn't it unfold differently? Oh, got it. You know? Okay, so what was your thesis around that? Because I I know this is a massive thing to talk about in yeah. a short period of time. Yeah. But what's that? What did you come up with, or what what kind of perspective did you take on that? Yeah. So so the way I looked at it is really it, there's it's a contested futures. The future is that's the the battle everybody's battling for the future you know what does mm. that future of the country look like yeah. so my the title was contested futures the emergent for faces of nationalism in egypt from tahrir square to sisi's election you know that that three and a half or so years that you had four different forces the muslim brotherhood the military the liberals and really the the, the women that were there okay. during during the Arab Spring, Tahrir Square, but they went missing. They they did not share in that unfolding. And I and I put quite a bit of the material in the dissertation around that because it just goes to demonstrate the patriarchy, the nature mm. of it in in that society. It's not to say that women are not respected. It's just that there's a rule for them, and right. and they're expected to fulfill it, just like. The, the man is, is expected mm. to fulfill it. And even though you had an opportunity to really break barriers uh, in many, many different ways through that experience at Tahrir Square, and during those 18 days, they did. But subsequent to that, 
that experience, that experiment dissolved, dissipated. Mm. So uh, looking at nationalism as then becomes the tool that the military will use to bring legitimacy to the things they're doing, that the Muslim Brotherhood tries to use to bring legitimacy, to that secular, the liberals try to, to use, and, and so on. And in the end, the military was able to make a more compelling story. And the story is not just a story, it's narratives, it's actions, it's behaviors, it's you know, consistencies. And they were, all, of course, helped by the missteps that were made by President Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood when they had mm. the opportunity to be in power. So in that, though, something emerges for you because it's the story of what happens in Egypt, but there's, there's, an, there's something else that you're learning through this process or exploring and seeing. What's the, and, and I have lots of friends who are PhDs, but I've never done one, but it's almost like you get this focus you're in, but then you learn something as a result of it. That's just not the story that sure. unfolded. It's something behind that. What's, what's showing up behind yeah. that? that yeah. So one of the things when you're doing a, a dissertation or a PhD is you've got to have a methodology. You've got to have right. uh, a research, yeah, research methodology that is recognizable, credible, et cetera. And, yep. and, it, and it adds value. It, it helps to explain, you know, right. your dissertation, your points. And, yep. and for me, I, you know, I had looked at complex adaptive systems. I looked at historical sociology. I, I looked at a lot of different means of, of looking at dissecting this. Yeah. But what really struck me was the power of something called critical discourse analysis, CDA, sometimes called critical discourse studies. Mm. But that to me became a really powerful way of understanding the narratives, understanding the relationship between power, authority, Top down, bottom up, you know, all of those things that really come into play to understand how new, new vocabulary comes about, mm. how, how crises increase the options that, that are in front of you all of a sudden. While ah. before, when you have the status quo, everything is moving forward the way it is. Everybody knows how to behave. They know right. their place they, and they behave as such. The language they use is in concert and in conformity with their role and, and so on. So the language mm. in use is really guided and limited. When crises happen, real, fabricated, not what, when crises occur, all of a sudden the, those guidelines, the, the parameters expand. All of a sudden things huh. become more possible. So the potential increases. And is, is that because language starts to change and there's new vocabulary, there's new, there's new ways of using vocabulary as, a, as just one point of that? But what, what's actually occurring? So what, what's occurring is the possibilities. What is possible goes beyond mm -hmm. the, the norm. Because right. once, you, once you have protests, all of a sudden, there's new languages, new slogans that you're using, uh, right? Uh, okay, down with the, with the regime or, or, and, and so on. So a few months before, you'd have been in jail like that. But it opens up vistas. It opens up opportunities that weren't there before. Songs become written that poke fun at the authority, at, uh, at the current leaders. So placards, signs, symbols. Even Tahrir Square itself, the physical location becomes a new symbol. It becomes much larger in life than what it actually is. And yeah. the, the contest over who controls it becomes paramount regarding how you control the, the way mm -hmm. the language is unfolding, the way you know, symbols are, are perceived and, and mm. so on. So, you know, in anthropology, there's something called liminality, where you're, yep. you're going from one where yeah. you are today to something else, and you've got to pass through this darkness, through this dark cave, and you need a guide of some sort. Well, when, when you're going through that, all rules melt away, and you get an yeah. opportunity to reestablish rules and reestablish new norms and behavior when you come out. Well, those that are in charge today have to be aware of that and have to control that, knowing that they can't 
just stomp on it, but they have to jump in and play with it and guide it the way that they would want it to be guided. So mm. that's that's what happens. So I'm I'm just I, and this is just me grasping at something, but you said earlier that strategy, which is often delivered by the big consulting firms, comes in a book and it's delivered to the company and you're just sort of supposed to follow it. But is it those don't get done because the liminality that you talked about, the words, the language, the practices, the the importance of space or certain mm -hmm. symbols, is that why those often fall sort of on deaf ears? Is that why it doesn't really emerge to a new place? They're a tremendous intellectual exercise, cognitively mm. superior, but they are not rooted in the human factor. Uh. They're not rooted in the human experience. They, they are not cognizant of I don't want to use the term execution, but because it goes more, far more right. than execution. Strategy is really should be a living, breathing, adapting, changing thing. Mm -hmm. It is not one. It's, it's in the military. You, you you can lock on a on a target. You can set that target, fire and forget. And no, here you can't just fire and forget. You've got to constantly be engaged mm. and have that feedback loop and modify and adapt and that can't happen through a six months one year two year whatever it is the study it just you've got to be writing it as you're moving right you're writing it but it's writing you yeah there's nothing that you can do that doesn't also impact you in retrospect okay right but but given given your your thesis or your mm -hmm. PhD work and mm -hmm. what you learned with Arab Spring and what happened in Egypt, when you translate that over into trying to change systems, you can have the theory, you can have the end goal, you can sort of set the target. But part of what's unfolding as I'm hearing it is the people that you're trying, who are part of this system have to not just buy into this thing, that their language changes, the way they see the world begins to change. The uh, the that liminal space has to be transversed by people, not just by leadership. That's correct. That is correct. Absolutely correct. It's it's everybody in the organization, and they have to be brought along. They have to experience it. They and by doing that, they will actually impact it as well. It's not right. going to be the same as as yeah. they thought it would it would be. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So how has critical discourse analysis, how uh, and the use of that structure and also what you learned in your PhD work, how has it affected your own life? Like how, how has that thinking and that awareness changed you and how you work or how you operate in the world? You become very sensitive and very aware of words, of okay. ideas. You become aware of what comes out of the mouth of the CEO, what she puts out in a statement, what comes out during their quarterly earnings report. All of a sudden, each word is, is weighted, it has meaning, and it has to you know, relate to what's happening in the organization. It, there can't be a separation between how life really is and what's being stated. That so we talk a lot about transparency and authenticity and all yeah. that. Well, I think people are more and more sophisticated in understanding those things. And, you know, data, information, news, it's instantaneous. So when things aren't quite right, it becomes apparent pretty quickly. So the, the language in use becomes even more, more critical. And I think that you can't just have one conversation at, uh, every 90 days with Wall Street talking about why your margins are up and how you're going to reduce costs and all that, and then turn around and be telling the people that you're not going to cut headcount and that, you know, it, the two are connected and you can't have two different kind of conversations and expect that they're not going, you're not going to be found out. You're going to lose respect you're going to lose trust internally and 
you know, you may not be believed credibly on Wall Street either. So internal conversation, the external conversation become really important. Right. So that, that's been a real focus for you. So where do you see companies, organizations making mistakes given this unique way you look at the world? What are, the, what are companies getting wrong in, in terms of the way they construct their communication, the words they use, the, the narrative that they're expressing? They really understate the effort it takes to get everybody inside a company to understand the mission, to understand where they're going mm. and thinking that they had it in a press release or that they shared it during an all hands or that, you know, they put out an email that that's enough. You've got to repeat things over and over and over in different ways, different venues before people start to say, you know what, maybe this is real. I've heard that before. Oh yeah, I remember that. And it becomes more internalized. Under estimating the effort it takes to get the message internally understood, internalized, and lived. Right. And that live part is, I'm connecting the dots here, that live part is the team, the people who are part of this organization are actually saying the words, maybe differently than you want them to say it, but they're saying the words that are aligned with where you're going. They're putting up their own placards. They're acting in certain ways that have become aligned or have helped to realign the strategy document you put out mm -hmm. in the world or the strategy, but there's that, that, that ever present evolution, but you know, and you need to keep talking about it because you got to get it into their language, into their way of speaking. Am, am I following Ex correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. It, without the level below the, you know, the managers, the people that are actually getting the work done, if they don't have feel that ownership that belief and and they can tell when things aren't right and and right now companies a lot of companies are going through a downsizing yeah just a few months ago they were talking about uh, remote work and that's the new way and all that and lo and behold now they're telling everybody you've got to come back to the office or you've yep. got to have at least three days out of the week in the office yet when they get to the office now they've got to drive to the office there and back they've got to spend more money on gas when they're in the office, there are more distractions, you know, and they were getting a lot more work done before. And now they've got to find some, somebody to take care of the kids, maybe. Yeah. So the whole idea as if COVID never happened and so on. So the, the, the point is the credibility of the leaders is not just something that's tested once and you're done. It's yeah. ongoing. It's right. The, and people are, your workers are thinking about that and checking are you still being honest? Are you still being truthful? Are you, is this yeah. just BS or, or what? Interesting. So this, this show is about advisory boards and not yeah. that that matters, but how do you see this perspective that you have learned, that you have dug deep in? How do you feel like this now affects advisory board activity? How, how this language evolves, how how saying it over and over again, but now throw a board, an advisory board into the mix. How, how does what you've learned impact that? Yeah. So with critical discourse, I always think about different power relationships. You know, mm. when you're sitting in a room, you know, the CEO says something and everybody kind of chimes along or the chairman says something yep. and, and so yep. on. That, that doesn't do anybody any service. So it, you've got to be able to open up that conversation. So being aware of the, the power relationships and the hierarchies, actual, perceived, whatever, you, they, they exist. Now in a smaller company, a business owner, you're going to have less of that, but you have yeah. to still understand that when you say, this is where I think we need to go, it's going to be very hard for somebody that reports to you to tell you something different than that. They're going to have to dance around that to get you yep. to think about it. Yep. That, that wastes a lot of time. It, it just doesn't do anybody really any favors. So, so that's, that's one thing about critical discourse, that just to understand where you sit and what you say has an impact and how do you purposely, intentionally get other voices into the mix. That, that's mm. important. That's one side, just communication in general. Okay. So discourse, just having those conversations 
it's important to have open conversations, whether you're with your board of directors, with advisory boards, with yep. your C-suite, yep. because that is how we validate information. That's how we understand. That's how we collect information. So all those things happen through conversations and the richer the conversations, the, the greater the variety of the conversations, yeah. the better everybody will be off. And that is really important. So bringing the different perspectives, being able to listen and not be, not to squash points of views. Yeah. So I, I'm intrigued by just trying to connect back to some of your unique perspective, which is how important is amplifying tension in a board setting in these, these deeper conversations or being a stable presence? Seems to me there's a tension that exists in being effective when you've got a, a person of power who's now put maybe equals or people that don't, don't report to them in that setting. And I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm asking. I just feel like part of this, this, this perspective you bring is that there's, there's sometimes you have to go through these liminal spaces to get somewhere. And sometimes somebody who has a, a like a CEO has a, 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 a sense of this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. This is why I think we should do this. And you put the right people in the room. Some of them will amplify tension. Some of them will be stable presence. Some, but, but you've got to have that in the room somehow. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? So the experience that I've had, there are times, moments when you do need to amplify tension. Yeah. Sometimes everybody's so, so in agreement that there's actually no tension whatsoever. And when right. everybody's in agreement, you know, that should be red flags. You know, yeah. there's, there's something not quite right because there's got to be some different perspectives in, in that, in those conversations. So to amplify tension, as long as it's purposefully done to right. get a perspective uh, heard, to get people to ask better questions, mm. to explore things that are left unsaid, you know, yeah. there's nothing worse than accepting unstated assumptions yeah. with and, and not surfacing them because sometimes they are wrong. You know, conditions change in the market, your business changes, yet your underlying assumptions that you've internalized all these years, if not decades, have not changed and everybody's taking them for granted. Yeah. How do you bring them up without causing some tension? You have to, yeah. at other times, Everybody is running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You've got to bring things down and calm things down and just, hey, we're here. Let's focus on one question, on one thing. We're not going to solve everything. Let's not boil the ocean here. So you've got right. to be able to assess. You know, you've got to read, assess, and really quickly figure out, you know, which leverage you're going to push, how hard. And how loud. Yeah. And, and it seems to me, though, as you sit on boards, because I know part of your function now is to serve as an advisor, serve as a board member, serve in those capacities. When you come to these equations, when you come to these, when you come to the table, what unique perspective are you bringing? There's that you, you said earlier that you, you really hone in on the language, the way people use language. But when you're sitting around a board table, whether that be, you know, more of the, the governance style or more of the advisory mm -hmm. board, what are you trying to do? Like, what, what's, the, what's the function you want to bring? What's yeah. the unique perspective you want to bring to the room? Yeah, it, you know, the world isn't short of smart people. These yeah. boards, you know, and, and they're well-meaning people and, and so on. So. It's not about being smarter than somebody else or wiser than somebody else. It's really about looking at each situation as its unique self. Yeah. And, you know, the things that I, you know, we talked about in the military leadership and camaraderie, and, but there's also a lot about analytical, you know, mm -hmm. tools about thinking, connecting dots, finding things that don't necessarily appear at first. So. And then, of course, you're going through MBA, you're, you're going to be strategy. So my value that I bring is really be able to bring a big picture 
to understand the strategy, understand the capabilities and the capacities of the organization, where they're at and where they want to go and what's the delta, what's the gap in that, yeah. and make sure that there's understanding about the marketplace and whatever products or services that they're offering, you know, is there a good fit? And then if there's a good fit, how, how can we scale that profitably? So mm. the, the, is it the right model? Is it the right product market fit? Is it the right scalability? Is it, are the right people around the table in, in yeah. the organization? And what's missing? What can be added? How can you boost the, you know, this person or that person? So it, you're almost like cutting and slicing all at once and not losing sight of the minutiae or the big picture, be able to do up and down. And then language just becomes a tool within all that for it being effective or not yeah. effective. Yeah. I, I just sense though that you are also, I, it, like, I, I feel like one of the, the superpowers you bring is the ability to tie the language to the action, to the thing, just because that's a, that's an area of expertise you've built, not just, not just with your PhD work, but with your history, right? So that ability to kind of sit in, in a space with both a company leader and other people and uniquely connect some of those interesting dots that you see that I, I suspect a lot of people don't yeah. see just because of, of that unique background and perspective that you bring. You know, and, and action, that, that's at the end of the day, we, we got to come up with an action plan. Right. We, you know, we got to do right. something. Okay. Yeah. And doing something to be able to articulate that and to be able to understand that and measure that. Th those are all very important things. But words, the thinking and the doing, the action to change, you're, in a, you're stuck in a, in a certain tradition or status quo that you've got to make some changes, you, you've got to push and take specific actions that get you where you'd want to be, where you'd want to go. And language becomes yeah. an important tool and a lever that should be used that helps you get there. Yeah. Delightful. I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I wish I could talk more hours with you because I, I feel like there's so much behind what we've already talked about in terms of how things work and how things operate and at how the world unfolds. I love that concept of liminal spaces and how we get into situations ourselves where we have to process it. And sometimes we don't even have the words to process it. And until you get the words, you can't make sense of the world you're in because you don't have the words for it even a lot yeah. of times. Well, one of the, the, the biggest dangers I, I see with, especially it comes with more business owners, more so than in a C-suite because they built a company, they've invested their time and so on, that they feel certain about what they know, what the problem is or something like that. Yes. But you know, Max Weber wrote something or said something years ago, something like doubt is the father of knowledge. I mean, you've got to have some doubt. If you're, if you're yeah. so sure about something, you'll never learn something. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You, you'll, you'll never learn anything new. So. You've got to have some doubt. Otherwise, you're really in trouble. Yeah. Well, it's been delightful. And likewise, I, I, thank like you. Like I said, we could go on, but I, I feel like when, when I complete these conversations, I always like to just have a random set of questions to throw at you just quickly, just to remind us that you're both the incredible, wise person and you're just human like the rest of us. So, Android or iPhone? iPhone. What's the book that has shaped you more than any other book? Oh, wow. There, there's a book that I read when I was going through Naval Postgraduate School that stays stuck in my head, and I even used it during my dissertation. It is by Carl Mannheim. It was written in 1936. It's called Ideology and Utopia, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. What was the first question you asked ChatGPT? <laughs> How can we avoid World War Three? Oh, interesting. It was, um, a, it, was a, it was a lame, lame response, but yes. If you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would it be? John F. Kennedy. Okay. What's something outside your professional life, this very professional life that you're in, that you're irrationally passionate about? Wow. Uh, day trading. Stock market really? day trading. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And final question. What would your closest family members like, uh, maybe not your, your spouse, but maybe 
kids or or siblings or something, what would they define or what would they say you actually do in the world? How would they define what you do? Writes a lot. They'll just say he, he writes a lot. <laughs> it's beautiful. Mohammed, this has been an absolute joy. I, I appreciate your, your perspective, your wisdom, and thank you for taking the time to just share it with all of us. I think it's, it's been amazing. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for allowing me to, to share all that with you and the audience. Thanks. Thank you.